Ready graphics? Ready theme? Well, A, Murphy Brown as a character is life goals, right? Um, but I also really liked a lot of things about it and a lot of, it, it made me think a lot about the late 80s and early 90s. So, and I was really, really interested in it. I was really interested in what was happening with gender. Hi everyone, it's Lauren Milberger. Welcome to FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. And we are gonna have a special episode today because we have a special guest. I am a special guest. You are a special guest. All the way from Chicago. Yes. Which is uh, not Jesse, which is funny. So we were swapping Chicagoites today. We're just keeping everyone on their toes. Exactly. Right. Um, do you want me to, I guess. Yeah, introduce yourself. <laughs> Um, my name is Jackie Shine, and I am a writer and historian, and I live in Chicago. Um, I have a PhD in history from UC Berkeley, and one of the things I do as a historian is think about media history specifically. So partly I'm obsessed with Murphy Brown, and also I'm obsessed with it because I'm a, I think a lot about media and popular culture and its interplay with people's everyday lives and what it means kind of politically. And so sometimes that's 19th century photography and sometimes it's TV. And I write about, well, my dissertation was about cop shows. Well, no, sorry. It was five dissertation ideas before it was about cop shows, but that's it amazing. ended up being about police and policing as a way of kind of starting to think about cop shows. So I've always been interested in TV also. I think the big thing that people might know you from sort of the cross-section with Murphy Brown is that you did the recaps for the revival for Vulture. Yes. And that's how we found each other. Yes. And I started doing them because I emailed the editor I'd been working with pretty much out of nowhere. And as soon as I heard about the revival and literally the email was like, I'm ready to serve. <laughs> I'm, re I'm ready. I'm ready to willing and ready to serve because <laughs> I, I really wanted to do it. Uh, and it was some crazy number of months before it happened. So I... Got it first. Nice. So let's go back a bit. So as you said, you are obsessed with Murphy Brown, which makes you perfect for our podcast. So how did that happen? How did you first start watching the show and how did your obsession start? I started watching it five years ago. Um, I think because I was in a phase where I was recovering from writing something and I watched, binge watched all of Scandal in three weeks, which is actually extremely disturbing. Like, and, and the sad scandal music, I became like Pavlovian in reaction to it. So I, <laughs> I heard it in some commercial in the CNN airport channel and like whipped around to be like, where's scandal? Anyway, that's beside the point. Um, so I watched the first season of Murphy Brown. I think it was on Netflix at the time. And I really... Actually, it is not on Netflix. Well... I found it somewhere legal, I guess. That's interesting. Just, no, I'm, just the first season. Yeah, so the first season's on DVD. Maybe, okay, I did go to a weird video store occasionally and rent DVDs. That's how I watched Homicide. So yes, I probably got DVDs. Yeah. I bring it up just because that's sort of the issue with Murphy Brown. Is the that music. Is the music, and so it's not streaming at all. It's a little hard for people to find it. So it's so great that you found it just five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I watched a bunch of it, including the later seasons, which I found somewhere yeah gee I wonder where you found them no, somewhere I mean, just right yeah whatever um and I immediately was like oh well a Murphy Brown as a character is life goals right um but I also really liked 
a lot of things about it and a lot of it it made me think a lot about the late 80s and early 90s and I had been you know that that is something that I've thought about about media in the early 90s and stuff for a long time Mm -hmm. so and I was really really interested in it I was really interested in what was happening with gender because it also was not the only show at that time that was the where the the ensemble lead was a single woman yeah right and but you also had designing women shortly after that um a little later than that and it maybe doesn't count as reba right yeah but you also on designing women and murphy brown in particular you had women who were not nice that was something that i really liked about it was that the character murphy brown is not kind no. Sometimes she's a huge asshole. And she n- never apologizes for it. The sitcom formula for this is usually that someone's an asshole and then in the like last act of the episode, they apologize for it and reflect on what they're supposed to learn about life. And that never happens in Murphy Brown. It's like she's mean and her friends know that that's how she is and she just is that way. Yeah, like, they, they love her for her faults. And, and for when she can be a kind person. But it's, I think, today what is sort of referred to as an unlikable female character, right? Well, yeah, yeah and unlikable because she's just, she seems exempt from the kind of, like, social labor, right? Yeah. And also, on this, in this particular fantasy world, is never penalized for it. That never happens. Particularly for a woman. Right, and I really, this really seemed clear to me that this one episode where she put a dead fish in Frank's car... Um, and you know this was a a one-off gag or something but but it was smelled terrible and frank's like murph and she just laughs and there's never any and then they they move past it it doesn't it's not in the plot it's just a thing that she did and she does this a lot she she does a lot of pranks on people friends and (laughs) non-friends She also has non-friends. Yes, she does. <laughs> um, Enemies. Is that better? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I really liked that about it. Um, and Designing Women is similar because uh, Julia Sugarbaker is also an asshole. Um, and actually like that show, there's also this gender foil setup because you can't have Murphy Brown behaving that way unless you also have Corky Sherwood. You can't have one without the other. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, so... Corky is also a really interesting character and a complex character. And that's true of like Suzanne and Charlene on Designing Women also. Mm-hmm. But th- I think the like in the world of the story, the audience is not going to allow one set of that kind of transgression without also having something that that looks normative to them. Yeah, they balance each other. Right. And but Murphy wouldn't be permitted to behave that way in the absence of a character like that. The things that she, and it's not even like in the show, like psychologically they mm-hmm. all know that. It's I think, like in terms of the script in the show, they wouldn't do that, it wouldn't succeed. And do you mean as having another female character that's like that particularly? Yes, well another female character who behaves in ways that we expect women to behave, and who in actually in, in you know both of those cases is hyper feminine. Yes, very much so. So, and that's that's how, in in the story, there's permission for Murphy Brown to behave in a way that is not as socially coded and to wear what she likes and not have that coded as dykey, right? Because on, Good point. 
on homicide at the same I know a lot about TV. <laughs> on homicide, you're, at, you're in the right place. <laughs> on homicide, which was you know the early '90s, the Kay Howard character also wore kind of baggy suits. Yeah, true. Um, and it was not. We were not supposed to think that was flattering, but Murphy Brown, like we were like, oh, this is goals. This is this is. Uh, executive realness. That's really interesting because if you read Candace Bergen's biography, she talks about how hands-on she was in creating the look for Murphy Brown and that they would, you know, if they liked a certain suit, they might get it in three different colors. You know, so mm-hmm. they had a lot of Calvin Klein and, and very specific. And so she was really important. Um, there's actually something in her biography, which I can't really prove uh, the timeline per se, mm-hmm. so I may be wrong, where she says they couldn't find baseball hats with a the hole in the back for her ponytail and they said they had to create it because mm. there was a look that women just didn't have at the time there were no snapbacks exactly yeah if yeah that makes sense if they're anything they're like jogging hats probably with oh, okay. elastic at the back okay that makes sense that would be my guess but i mean also and i'm not objectifying her but she she is and certainly was a fox yes so that was also That's documented right i mean she had great legs great legs anyway um so Oh, those things become possible partly because there is a counterbalance mm-hmm. and because this show was written by smart people and produced by smart women, they also use that as a place where the women can negotiate their differences with each other and understand them. Um, I mean, I think Corky is the character that, that Murphy works hardest to kind of accommodate in terms of, of expanding her own views. And I think Corky's not dissimilar. I mean, Corky doesn't, Corky clearly like doesn't approve of some of the ways that Murphy behaves, but Corky also is extremely butch in the like Southern storytelling that she does. <laughs> Cause so, you know, yeah. it'll be, she's ladylike. And then it's like, my uncle's alligator got drunk at Thanksgiving or whatever. And also I have to say, watching it again as an adult through adult eyes, something I hadn't noticed before, uh, Corky can sometimes be a bit of an asshole. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, she she wants what she wants. She believes that it's important. And, it, you know, if, if, if it's getting something from the duty-free shop from, uh, uh, from Miles or demanding that Frank do something because that's just the way that you do it, you know, she I didn't realize how much she was not necessarily, I don't want to say the word perfect, but in that sense of being ladylike. There you go. Yeah. The definition of so-called ladylikeness. She's not necessarily. And... I think of all the characters on the show, she has the largest arc because she does become mm-hmm. more like Murphy as the series goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that her sense of like, well, I can do this. I'm also going to behave this way is the is replaces what would be kind of disciplinary behavior from everybody else. Mm-hmm. It's more like, fine, Murphy, I can do that too. Rather than like, Murphy, you need to stop doing that. Um, and so that's really interesting. That was like one thing at that, that I thought was really interesting what was happening then. Um, the other thing about designing women um, is that it does the same thing that Murphy Brown does, which is that it starts with a character premise that is out of the ordinary, but then they let it become a background part of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, so Murphy Brown is an alcoholic coming back from the Betty Ford. Yeah. In the first season, there's some nail biting and stuff, but it doesn't become a story arc where she struggles with her sobriety and goes up and down and gets back on the... They don't tell yeah, that it's story. It's not mom. Well, they don't tell that yeah. story about getting sober and falling off the wagon and whatever because that's any al- alcoholic character anyone else. That's what they do, mm-hmm. right? And 
I thought that was really interesting. It's like Murphy got sober. That's what happened. And she, it was probably not easy, but she did it off camera. It didn't affect what we needed to know about her. Yeah. What happened on Designing Women a few years later was that in the first episode, they hire Anthony to do delivery for them. And the character had just gotten out of prison. Oh, I forgot about that. Right. And that also, if it ever becomes an issue in the show, it's because other white ladies are suspicious of black men. Mm. Not because, or, or generally, not even because he'd been in prison. But it's, it's, they've done this thing that is remarkable, especially for like presumably Atlanta in the early 90s, yeah. which is that they hire uh, someone who had been imprisoned um, and that just happens and is over. Anthony doesn't really have to prove himself to them as honest and trustworthy. They assume that he will do it and he does. Yeah. And I think that's also a kind of easy dramatic trope that otherwise would be mined for the... What it, I mean, I don't think it's inherent drama, but I think, yeah, right, or a very special episode. There, right? There's no, there's none of that with the drinking. There's none of that with Anthony. Um, and I really liked that partly because those stories are almost never told in interesting ways otherwise. And yeah. so choosing not to really tell them, I thought was an interesting, like, diegetic strategy. Like it happened and it's formative. But we see the formed person, not the yeah. formation. We're not going to dwell on it. Right. Because sometimes those things don't matter. Yeah. Um, so those were some things I really liked and appreciated about it and thought, like, this is really smart. This is really interesting and weird. And I love the other characters. And so I really, I really got into it. And my personal brand is, like, when the revival was announced 10 people texted me and posted on Facebook and whatever. They're like, Murphy Brown's being revived. And I was like, oh, I know. <laughs> I'm already there. Yes, I got, I got tons of Facebook messages. So, yes. So that was, that's my Murphy Brown story. Great. So a, as a historian, what do you find the most interesting aspects or storylines from Murphy Brown? As someone who has studied how these things work in different forms of media mm -hmm. um, I'm interested in what it does specifically with this kind of meta layer of what the show's reality is because we always see this I mean we've seen this like through the history of American mass culture is like what is real about the story and what isn't and how do you know where you are in relation to it and on Murphy Brown it's that Murphy Brown is a TV show, so that's true, whether or not it's with us. Mm -hmm. And it's also a TV show that is, quote unquote, on the same network as yes. FYI. That's the thing that I really think makes it funny and weird is like, FYI is a TV show. It is on the CBS network in the show and also literally, right? Like, it, both things are true. Um, and they bring, especially because it's so interested in the professional world of women in media, mm -hmm. she's interacting with other women from CBS. Yes. So it's it's not even like, I mean, sometimes it's Jane Paul. Well, Jane Pauley was on CBS, I think. Uh, no, Jane Pauley was on the Today Show. Oh, okay. She was on NBC, yeah. But, but that's later on in the seasons, well, too. And so sometimes it's it's women from other 
professional places. Yeah. It's Katie Kirk or whatever. But People who would be at the same level as her. Like, I think almost everyone except for Barbara Walters was on the show. Right. Yeah. But the specific having women from CBS on the show, yeah. talking to Murphy Brown, who hosts a TV show on the network, on a show about hosting the show on the network, like, it's really, it's funny and smart and disconcerting in a way that I, I thought was cleverly done. Yeah. And I really, I really liked that. Um, yeah, we just talked about Connie Chung. Yes. Well, before The Office, really, right? The The Office workplace on TV, it has a, a quality of unreality. Very much so. That isn't, that we find it very easy to think past. We don't pay a lot of attention to it. And, you know, it would have been very easy to have FYI as a show within a show on a network, like like they changed, like in the new season, like in the new revival where it was whatever, some made yeah. up thing, right? Or like on on, on SVU when they used yeah. to be like, this isn't the West on, Wing. They're on Face yeah. Union. Like on the West Wing, you have made up political characters and you have made up television shows like uh, Capital Beat, things like that. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. It's not Gettysburger um, scandal. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I didn't watch Scandal. No, well, I mean, the, one of the jokes is that the burger place is called Getty's Burger. I like that. I like. I, it. I like a good pun. Yeah, yeah. So um, specifically, the way it was done there is like it goes past this expectation that we have that there will be some sort of f- f- fake thing that represents the real. It's very invested in the real, and and like you don't have to like it or appreciate that about it to watch the show, but it's just kind of like fun to interact with and makes her more real yes yes and that character in particular i think especially given her kind of gender presentation and her character i think is really interesting i think it it makes you know women executives it, it sort of projects that and projects onto these other women who in the field who were on the show that that is uh, a meaningful professional persona. Yeah, and you hear stories of women, um, oh, and I'm gonna, I forget her name right now, but used to run Yahoo, who said that she watched Murphy Brown as a child and said, oh, I saw that I could be a professional woman. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily that she became a professional woman in news. You know, I know I have a friend of mine who loved to watch Murphy Brown. She became an editor. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be an actor and a writer. You have people who will watch The West Wing and want to be politicians and someone who wants to be an actor. I find that sort of cross-section really interesting. But I think it's also, it shows how important representation is. Mm-hmm. If you see yourself doing something that maybe you didn't think you could do, it it gives you the impetus to say, you know what, yeah, I can do that too. Yeah, and I think it's more meaningful in a context where it seems like a truer representation. Yeah. Like the, the CBS piece. It's not, it's not a fake world. Right, it's not, oh, there's a character who does this. It's like, oh, here's this CBS yeah. actor. And there's Walter Cronkite. Right, Walter, we love you. Yeah. Um, I actually, well, an interesting thing is like, I didn't, we didn't really watch Murphy Brown in my house when I was a kid mm-hmm. um, because we were not, probably were not allowed to. Oh, why so? Because my mom had very strange uh, tastes in popular culture and like weird rules because she had been um, she was a teen mom not me but I had a much older sibling and she didn't get to go to college or do the kinds of things that would have made her into somebody like Murphy Brown Uh right and so she sort of had a like position in the culture war that was kind of 
based on that. So like we were not we were allowed to watch The Simpsons. Well, that's interesting. We were we were not allowed to watch Laverne and Shirley, which came on next. But she so she had these things. And I think she would not have liked Murphy Brown. And I think I never talked to her about it, but I think she specifically would have absolutely rejected the single the single parent storyline. So this definitely wasn't around that time that your mother would have been aware of that and been like, no, it just was a coincidence that you didn't watch it because it was not in her purview. Um, it was. I think she she would have known enough having read about it to 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 not like it. Yeah. Um. I mean, what it was about Laverne and Shirley specifically, I don't. Yeah. So were know. you old enough then to remember the whole Dan Quayle thing when it happened, or you know it in retrospect? Uh, I was five, and it was every like Dan Quayle was funny to kids because he didn't know how to spell. Yeah. So I think I probably knew that he had been on TV. I didn't know the whole. I didn't know that they had done this thing where they also replicated this um, sort of murky relationship with real representation mm-hmm. um, and that she had answered back yeah. as Murphy Brown um, until I saw the show. Yeah, he even sent a gift to the fictional baby to which they went, he's not a real baby. Right. That's. I mean, that's the thing. Is ulti- <laughs> ultimately, it's like, this isn't real. You, that becomes the like the stunt at the end is he tries to follow it to its to its conclusion. There is no conclusion because the baby's not real. Yeah, sorry, Dan. Um, but it was really interesting because I know lots of people um, who would say, "Oh, I watched it with my mom." Yeah, that was not what happened in my house. Um, no, I love this story. I love that you found it later because that's what we originally started the podcast for was we wanted to hopefully because it's not streaming and it, it was frustrating that people were losing sight of it because they weren't able to watch it. And to, to, have, to find out that you watched it only just five years ago makes me so happy. Well, I actually, at the time, pitched to a publication that had a, f- a regular recurring feature on like things I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. And I pitched the Murphy Brown season one box set. And in 2014, nobody was into Murphy Brown stories. Yeah. Like, it didn't... No one... N- n- it, Murphy Brown was a weird thing that I was obsessed with. Same. And even the cultural things that I had to say about it, which are the same things I just told you, yeah. like, weren't interesting to anyone. Um, so it was really, I mean, so Murphy Brown, and I, and, but I had like, I like trolled eBay for FYI gear. Oh, I love you. I have a Murphy Brown for Vice President shirt. You do? I do. That's it's fantastic. It's way too big for me, so I wear it don't wear it very often, but I wore it on election, some election day to cheer myself up in Donald Trump's America. Um, but I had one of those and I had, oh, and then I got the soundtrack cassette tape and listened well, to it. Well, you gotta, you gotta get that. That's well, the best. Well, I had a tape deck in my car because I basically drive uh, a very old Crown Vic that was my grandma's. And like listening to Superstition in that car is extremely cool. Oh yeah. So and then uh, there was there was uh, an FYI watch that had been made for the cast on eBay once. Oh, like a like a wrap gift? Yes, and I really I still wish I had bought it. But it's okay. It's okay. Maybe I mean it's the also days. I think I have probably an eBay alert for it. I'm sure that that someone will. No one wears watches anymore. It'll come up. True. That's true. So that's my yeah it, I became interested in Murphy Brown once I had already had like this very extensive training in thinking about culture and thinking about media I love that that's really interesting I wasn't expecting that and I think that that um, 
I mean, obviously I wanted you on because of your background, but the fact that you were able to see that with a critical eye, because that's what I'm doing now, is mm-hmm. I, I, used, I really have not seen them all in a while. Mm-hmm. So it really is looking back in them as an adult and remembering things that I thought when I was a kid and how different it is or how it is the same mm-hmm. too. You know, things that, that is the thing that I get because I was 12 when mm-hmm. I started watching it is, well, why? particularly from the writers, <laughs> what drew you to it? And I, I don't think I could articulate it at the time, but now having to go through uh, why, mm-hmm. I saw someone that I wanted to be. I was bullied. And here was someone who stood up for bullies. Right. I also thought it was funny. Oh, it, it, yes. It was. I mean, that's helpful too. And surprisingly, not that many jokes went over my head. I have to say, there are a few now that I watch and I go, oh, that's a sex joke. I didn't get. I think it was like <laughs> adult, but not like inaccessible no not at all yeah um but i also actually at that time the reason i had gone on this purifying scandal binge Mm -hmm. was because i had just written uh a very long history of the new york times style section for the all which i miss i missed and the all it was the best website yeah Um, i i'm i i I didn't i don't even know it yeah you'll there's a lot you should send it to me i will Um, But I did a lot of research about the position of women in media in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So in the time that specifically specifically would have been Murphy Brown's like coming up. Yeah. Right. And um, so the, the, the episode specifically where she decides she wants to integrate the press club with Jim um, was really cool and funny because I, you know, had read, memoirs by the women who did that like the Washington Press Club was I think this New York Times reporter named Nan Robertson was responsible Mm -hmm. for it oh you mean uh, the men's club yes yes okay yeah when the press club was men only Um, because that's what it was it was that it was the the it was a, a professional organization uh, yes, but it was just, I believe that it was just a men's club. I don't think it was just for press because there is a doc, there's a lawyer in there that she talks to at one point Uh-oh. and there's some clergy. Well, maybe I just, whatever. I, I, it's okay. No, but it, it would make sense that you would superimpose that on right. top of it because it sounds like what you were saying, please continue about so, integrating the press club. Right. So this Nan, this, this woman, Nan Robertson did it. Um, and she has a book about it called the girls on the balcony. Um, so I had been, I thought a lot about what, those professional gestures were like when women made them, mm-hmm. especially because they weren't not necessarily feminist gestures. Like we wouldn't, they wouldn't have necessarily described them that way. Yeah. And so that was, and Jim was like, they have a dance party by themselves at the end of it. And yeah. it, I, I mean, Jim is a really good dancer. This is actually, Soul Man is the episode you're referring to is actually one of my favorite episodes because it has a really great relationship between um, Murphy and Jim, as you, as you were talking about. But but also, it, exactly, it shows something very important about um, Murphy trying to get into this men's only club. But what we talked about in our episode, actually, that was really interesting and something that I didn't even realize was that at that time, because the show was developed in 87, started in mm-hmm. 80, 88, this episode was 89, and about 1987, there were a lot of court cases because eventually the Rotary Club mm-hmm. uh, went up to the Supreme Court and they, the Rotary Club was made to admit women, which opened up a lot of floodgates for other, like uh, the Friars Club, for example. Um, the Elks. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, which a lot eventually just did because they were afraid of litigation. Some actually were forced to. Right. And now we're going backwards. You know, right. there are a lot of clubs that, are, that used to be men only and then they admitted women and now they're going back to being men only. Yes. Which is also something actually incidentally that happened with... Uh, 
some co-ed liberal arts colleges early in like the 19th century. Oh. Is that they started co-ed and then became men only. Um, Interesting. Yeah, like the University of Chicago started co-ed, became men only, and then went back to being co-educational. But Nan Robertson, I'm only going to tell you this because it's amazing. Please. Is that she was a politics reporter and a prize winning, and that was really important at the time. She w- like she was a breakout star, but the piece that she was best known for, and I think won a Pulitzer Prize for towards the end of her career, was this story about um, sh- this time she got severe toxic shock syndrome. Oh wow! In 1982, <gasps> it's like a New York Times magazine. No, it was a might have been a style section story actually, but or a magazine piece about her very serious illness, like. She lost fingers in this. Oh, my God. Um, and I think this was the time when there w- then there was this attention on uh, tampons and, and feminine products and the problem of toxic shock syndrome. I think, I, think, I think that is what brought it to public attention. Oh, maybe why we have the little, thing, little, little leaflets in right. the box. Because yeah. it, I mean, it was a thing. And in the next couple of years other um it it came up from other in other sort of social locations but i think this piece about that she did about having had it was really one of the big things that pressed it forward and i just find that so fascinating and she also kept writing after she lost fingers so that was also kind of that was called also pretty bitchin yeah yeah Um, it's funny you know she was a little off topic obviously but you know you hear about toxic shock but you don't hear about the aftermath of it you know i've I've heard people dying from it but not losing and it was really interesting yeah that it was by the early 80s someone who would have professionally had to distance herself from service and lifestyle reporting mm-hmm. um, felt able and ready to go back to it. It had become politically important to her. Yeah. Because she and lots of other women journalists in the 50s and 60s didn't want to do women's journalism. They wanted to be, quote-unquote, serious journalists. Yeah, Barbara Walters talks a lot about that. Right. And... and um, a lot of women at the times who started in the women's pages, like Nan Robertson, like Gloria Emerson, um, were like vehement that they weren't they weren't women's reporters, women's issues reporters. But then towards the end of her career, it the context is such that Nan Robertson can do that, and it is remarkable, but it isn't transgressive. Mm-hmm. And I think that also says tells us something about how Murphy's character is situated as a woman in the profession. Right, that like it's not. I mean, it's partly. Well, I don't know that this this is actually what I want to say about it. So never mind. But it, I think it it sort of helped people think about what might be political about the personal and yeah. how that might be of use in people's lives and when that might be something more than a women's issue. As an historian, how do you feel that um, now? knowing Murphy Brown and loving Murphy Brown and being a big fan of it, that it has reverberated through television today? That's a good question. Um, or maybe along the way, even, that led, you know, like the Beatles, yeah. everyone's influenced by the Beatles, but they may not like the Beatles. Well, I, I, so I think one thing is that the late 80s and early 90s, there was actually this amazing openness about um, diversity and representation in media where people just did things, mm-hmm. um, just tried stuff. And I think in, in sitcoms in particular, there was a regressive period after that. Um, 
It's women as uh, partners became very important in comedies. Like everybody loves Raymond, right? Yeah. We don't really see, I mean, when we see other single characters, like it's not cool on Will and Grace that Grace is single. Oh, good point. Right? It's like we're supposed to think something is weird and defective about it, even though we love her. The point of Allie McBeal is that Allie McBeal is single. The point of Murphy Brown was not that she was single. Um, so there there's also becomes this investment in putting women in, who are in that social position into a different category that that is disciplining them, right? Yeah. For for the choices that they make about that stuff and for their desirability to men. Do you think this is maybe the fact that those are two series that I mean, I don't know about the entire writing staff of Ally McBeal, and I'm I'm sure there are women who write for Will and Grace. I absolutely know that. But still these are two shows that are created by men, as opposed to Murphy Brown's created by a woman. Yes, I think the fact that those shows were created by men does make a difference and they do sort of veer back into the stereotypes that that are sort of superimposed on women, on single women especially, and that becomes the kind of disciplinary answer to Murphy Brown. On the in the world of the show, nobody penalizes her for not being womanly enough. But then in the larger context of entertainment, we see more and and Roseanne also, this is also a reaction to Roseanne. Yeah. We see more and more um, that women are penalized for not being feminine enough. And not only is that insufficient, like not being like sexually available enough or being too sexually available, right? Mm-hmm. Then yeah. it becomes that trap. So I think that was probably, and we can think of that as a reaction to Murphy Brown and we can think of it as also one of the, I think a really interesting and important way to think back about what diversity in the industry meant then because people like to say that diversity is like is a head count. It's like, are there women in the room? It's not mm. necessarily or often, what's the difference when you put women in the room? And, what, and that is a difference, is that um, the status of women as social beings is thought of differently. Being single isn't bad. Yeah. This is this is reminding me. I don't know if you've seen Late Night yet, and I'm not going to give any spoilers because I know it, it it just came out. Um, but one of the the big things, and I've read a lot of articles about it as well, is that you know Mindy Kaling based a lot of this on the fact that uh, she was a, di- a diversity hire for The Office, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily her entire experience, but a little bit of her experience and other people's experience. And there's a line where one of the characters says, I, you know, I, I want other people in the room because they have different uh, viewpoints and ideas. And she said the point is, is that more women in the room is not a diversity hire, so to speak. It's because you're going to have people thinking differently. And the more people you think differently, the more diverse the show is going to be. And it may not be explicit. I don't know that the that Diane English's writer's room would have had conversations about whether or not it was okay that Murphy was single. She just was. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. I think more recently in, like, the prestige drama, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of interest in um, women as as characters who who do some of that resistance of of feminine social roles. I would would say I think we're more interested in the terms of story um, of women struggling with those roles as the drama, right? As as the conflict in the plot. Um, I mean, that was certainly true on Mad Men, for example. Um, It was true on Six Feet Under. It was true on... A lot of of other things, whatever. I'm sure many. All good good choices. Right. Um, But 
more recently, when you see people like Mindy Kaling and Maya Rudolph, I think those are the women producing characters and stories that that owe the most to Murphy Brown because there there is like I think Maya Rudolph's affect particularly mm-hmm. I think of is is sort of like world weary in a way that that reminds me of Candace Bergen's kind of Murphy Brown like what is this shit right yeah and that, that there's it registers it and kind of takes it in and is notices it as kind of ludicrous yeah I have no time for this I have my own stuff right and that as something that's just about who she is um, as a character, not as a character yeah. who's a woman. So I, th- I think the comedians who are doing that kind of work now, in particularly in television, I think owe a lot to Murphy Brown. I think Liz Lemon owes a lot to Murphy Brown. Absolutely. I, even though you will also find there that there is more discipline for her for the way that she behaves. If she is too masculine, Jack Donahue has something to say about it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so th- the difference, I would say, between those shows is partly that the tension of gender and femininity is the story in a way that it wasn't armor fee brown yeah and i and i think also the spectrum of female showrunners as opposed to back then you had linda bloodworth thomason and you had dying english and there may be more but i can't think of any that they were all run by men Mm -hmm. yeah so tv is cooler now yeah but also often very stupid because things don't we're not as enlightened as we think we are. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. So let, let's get a little fanny, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you yeah. know, we've done, we've done, we've done our. Uh, I like that you you stretched your hands because right. that makes me think we've done our our historical calisthenics. That's right. Um, but now we're going to be fangirls. So, what do you have any particular favorite episodes, favorite arcs, favorite aspects, favorite jokes? Something that when you think of Murphy Brown, this is my favorite thing. Corky Sherwood Forest. (laughs) It's a great name. I really like puns. I love puns. And I really liked that. I remember really liking that. Can you imagine when they figured that out? It was a big moment. I'm sure sure it was a... She should marry a guy named Forest. Yes. And well, and also like as a professional writer, the fact that their marriage ends because he's decided he needs to write a novel and is not going to be a lawyer anymore was like also like very, very funny to me. Um, well, it was almost like they were switching roles, right? Because mm-hmm. in in a, a pre Murphy Brown, let's say you know a story, you would have where the wife was at home and the husband was working, and and the wife felt that they were um, not fulfilling their. Uh, artistic needs and weren't being looked after and were resentful because they were home all the time and not doing anything like I, I feel like in a way kind of their roles were reversed slightly well that's it's also very like Mrs. Maisel right oh yeah yeah um but he's like I'm a sensitive artist so I'm not gonna earn money anymore and Corky's like oh well that's that's interesting yeah and then she works all day and comes home and he has not done nothing to prep the party Yes. That they're having and the guests end up eating cat food. Yes. Literally eating cat food. But that's Frank's fault, really. I mean, <laughs> yeah, Frank. he's looking for food. It's always Frank's fault. He tried. He really does. Frank tries really hard. He does. Frank just wants to be a good dog. We all just want to be good dogs. <gasps> oh, but like, you that's know, such a great, he yes. wants to be a very good dog. Yeah. I love that analogy. That actually totally fits him. It also fits like it's too, like it's like too real for me. <laughs> I just want to have a job and be good at it. Right. Same. Um, I also, I really loved 
Jim and felt like very tenderly towards Jim. Mm. Um, partly because the physical comedy of that role really like was really expressive about um, he was a stiff person, but his stiffness was illuminating rather than um, an obstruction. Yeah, or a three-dimensional character. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else, I think another actor in that role could have made it very much just sort of a one-note character. Yeah, and his marriage was really lovely. Yeah. Um, it also just made me think, though, partly because they're, almost everyone is single, there are no like adult children in that show. Yes, that's a good point. That's something that I find very interesting. Particularly when the revival happened, I thought that at least Corky would have one child. It's just Avery. It's just Avery. And I think it's a, there are a lot of women who have to, or decide to sacrifice having a family or have no interest in having a family. And that is something that necessarily doesn't get the focus as much, is that work is the number one priority, whether Mm -hmm. they want it to be or they don't want it to be. I think also there was something to be said about, well, these are the characters we know. I mean, look at Will and Grace, Mm -hmm. right? They could have continued it where it was, but they decided to scrap it because this is the way that people know the characters and this is the way we want to bring it back. Mm -hmm. So I I do understand that. But that is something that I had not really thought of until the revival when I went, yeah, this is one of the few shows where nobody, not even like a niece or a nephew, really. Right. The the one thing I really wish the revival had had was a younger woman for Murphy to reluctantly mentor. Same. I was hoping for something like that, too. Like, I think it would have been much more. I mean, I loved Nick um, and I, I loved I eventually really liked the Avery character. Yeah. Um, but there would have been so much that I think actually Diane English would have been interested in 2018 and 2019 in exploring mm-hmm. about gender um, in the world. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wish that had happened, but like there's no, no and, and it wouldn't have had to be a mothering relationship. Which, oh yeah. Which would have been hilarious also. Which has been done on the show before when she had her friend's daughter come to visit. That was sort right. of more like a mothering relationship. But yeah, right. I think we don't see that very much. We don't really see women mentoring other women. Without, without it being uh, like coached as care. Yeah. Or um, uh, against each other. Yes. Yeah. So, um, that was, that's sort of an interesting thing about it to me, um, especially as an adult person who may, may not have children, because we don't really imagine what adults' lives are like if they don't have children. Yeah. Um, and I wish that was explored more. Yeah. I Yes, because on Murphy Brown, it's that they work. Yeah. Um, but I, oh, I really loved Jerry Gold a lot. Okay, so we need to talk about this, because there are very few people that I meet who love Jerry Gold as much as I do. You go first. I just thought... I mean, I thought it was really interesting to see how both characters softened. Yes. Not even that, like, oh, it, not even like a James, what's his face, Mary Madeline thing. Oh, James Carville. Yes. Yeah. Not even that, where we're like, oh, or George and Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. George Conley's Twitter feed is savage. <laughs> I've seen some of it. I don't follow any of them for reasons that I'm sure everyone can guess. Right. Yeah. But um, they both soften in really interesting ways. And they decide that the pretense isn't important enough interpersonally to maintain. They actually don't want to be rivals in an intimate relationship. And that's, yeah. th- I think that's one of the reasons they don't stay together. 
Yeah. Well, the problem I think is they think that they're so opposite, but they are actually very alike. Yes. They have different perspectives, but personality wise and direction wise, they are too alike, which is what makes it hard to be in a relationship. And and makes it uncomfortable for them because it, they they have to relate in a different way. Yeah, and you bring up, you know, I think which is one of my favorite episodes, The Gold Rush, when they are forced to be rivals and they don't want to be mm-hmm. because they are they, they fall in love with each other, right? And it's too intense and they don't want to fight because they um, are in the glow of this real passionate love. Sort of a, a build up from the last episode where it was sort of just kind of like flirting, dating thing. Um, or just, you know, having fun. So what... I think is interesting is the fact that they do love each other is that Murphy can't let him let go of this opportunity right. to host a pretty much the tonight show. Right. And it's not even like I'm going to sacrifice my man. It's like I I'm going to let you I'm not I'm I'm going to give you back this professional persona you need because your success is at least as important to me because because the person you are when I love you needs to do this. Yeah. And and she knows that they will not be the same people if they try to have a long distance relationship, just like they won't be the same people if they're if she if he feels that that because of her he had to let go of this amazing opportunity. Yes. Which is something that happens in a lot of, you know, two uh, professional household relationships that is not discussed a lot. Well, and I isn't it in the case where she the other ex, Avery's dad? Maybe? Avery's dad, yeah. Jake. It, it, with Jake, almost the reverse happens. Like, he's going to go off and she's sort of like, oh, I don't have that go, go, go anymore. But it was also sort of like, he leaves her to do what she needs to do. Because if he had been there, if he w- was in her life, like, she wouldn't be the same. She would be softened in a way that I think mm, would have been less interesting. Yeah. and And would have been... Um, made her kind of less lively. And what's interesting in that is that they make a point to say that he already made the decision to leave before he finds out she's pregnant. That's just an afterthought. I was going to go anyway. Right. You know, this is not for me, which is a whole other story, which I think that he does, that he he, he comes back, he gets gets her all excited and then goes, ah, never mind. It's not for me, which is totally unfair to Murphy. Um, But going back to Jerry, what, what I loved about the character, now when I started watching the series, I had not seen him yet when they weren't romantic so i had not seen him be this sort of really jerk troll like a seinfeld character um but uh i feel like even jerry almost feels like if 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 jerry had been on twitter he would be a troll because he loves it he likes to dig in people and make people angry i wish he had come back to be on the wolf network oh that would have been so great yeah yeah i mean i would also love jay thomas to be alive that would be also even better i mean I just, or at least I wish there had been some like Jerry Gold joke. Yeah, I was waiting for that. Like maybe Avery was going to bump Jerry Gold. Yeah, or my thing was that Jerry has a daughter Mm. and then that that maybe he has a similar relationship with with Avery. That might be interesting. But But alas, alas. that's all right. We'll write the fan fiction. That's right. Yeah. Um, But what I loved about Jerry, and I think this is a testament to Jay Thomas and the writing, and obviously Diane um, liked writing for Jay because he went on to be on several of her television series, was that he had this sort of hard outside interior, but uh, I guess maybe much like Carrie Fisher said about Han Solo, a a gooey inside. Mm Mm-hmm. And and that really came out when he was with Murphy, mm-hmm. that that he was a jerk, but he really cared for her and would go out of his way for her. And when they were together, they had these really amazing sparks and there were layers there so that you really felt like in 
a sitcom episode, which was probably, you know, in real life would have been a couple of months, mm-hmm. is a week that they fell in love. Mm-hmm. And you believe that and that he he really cared for her. And whenever they were in a scene together, it was funny and it was poignant. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I really wanted to see more of. Well, it was also very much like a culture wars narrative. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting now because what seems to have happened is there is no meeting in the gooey center like not even in the middle but there's no meeting in the gooey center there's this idea that that's actually not possible and if it is possible it is politically compromising yeah um and i don't you know and i think that's because partly because of this burlesque of what politics is supposed to mean Mm. um and i think partly like the in i don't know conservatism and liberalism are not equivalents yeah well that was something about jerry was like you may think he's a jerk but you when he explains his his thought process, which is that he wants to keep people accountable, yeah, you go, oh, okay. I may not agree with how you do it. I may not agree with uh, the way that you keep people accountable and why you want to. But the whole concept of saying, well, you've done well and now you're not continuing to do well and you're a hypocrite. I go, okay, I, I get you. You know, and, and that they could have just made him kind of a one note sort of conservative type character. But everything that he said and then he explained why he believed it, I would go, OK, yeah, I get it. And you see why he and Murphy fell in love. Right. And that I think that kind of um, I mean, we're also obsessed with this idea that that's going to heal America is if we come to understand each other's positions. Yeah. So it's also sort of worth noting that that storyline is a late 80s, early 90s storyline because that that discourse was already happening then yeah. at the same time. It would be a very different story today. Yes, but it would still, there would still be, that would still be the plot. It's the result of, like, it, it, the story would, would have the same registers, but it wouldn't, well, that's not even right. The story would look the same superficially. It's two people with opposing views. The result would be, it's not possible to, to, really see people yeah and we saw frank with um the woman from the wolf network but we never saw them have a back and forth discussion about their views it was just oh she works for this channel and and we're against this channel and therefore this relationship is a problem and in the end it was because he didn't trust her right like that that's that is the version of jerry gold and murphy for 2018 Mm -hmm. that's how that that's how that ends up and frank you blew it yeah, he really did. I loved them together. They also had great chemistry, which was which was good too. I would have liked to have seen more of them. Yeah. Um, oh, but also I loved the wardrobe, right? Like I just oh. something else we needed to discuss about Pat it. Pat Field. Um, well, the spe- yeah the specific in the original the specific thing that I was obsessed with was this robe that she had. Oh, I think it's the same robe that I'm obsessed with. The the blue one yes. with the white print. Mm-hmm. That specifically, I was like, yes. Like, I, if I found that on eBay, uh, I, if it was new or used, I would buy it. That's the, oh, so I spent a very long time trying to figure out what it was so that I could buy one. Did you find it? Yes. <gasps> yes. It's not a kimono. Partly, it's not a kimono. But it's Japanese. It's not a kimono because it's made of like a light summer cotton. For those who may be a little lost, I'm just going to let you know it's the one that she's wearing when she finds out she's pregnant. Right. Because then that summer, that picture was everywhere. That robe was yeah. bitching. Eldon hates that robe. And we, we've already said that Eldon is, is way long, wrong about that. He was right about a lot of things. Yeah. Please tell us how to get the robe. They're usually floor length. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can get 
shorter ones. I have both, one I got in the state sale and one I bought online. I really wanted the crane motif, but that doesn't seem, that I could not find. Mine has fish. Okay, so it's not the same pattern, but it's a very right. similar robe. It's as close as I could get. Um, and I referred to it as my Murphy Brown robe. I feel like we're a kindred spirit right now. Yes. I, I was really hoping that in the revival it would be like on a on a wall somewhere or just like in the background, like the robe. We just, it was just, we just loved it. It was yeah. just, it was just our, I our think passion. of, when I think of her, I think of that robe. Right, because she's like always sort of hassled and still working, uh, but also wearing an extremely great robe. Yeah, and, but also, the, this is a small thing and, and it's almost time for us to, to wrap up, but when she would wear the robe, usually, you know, her hair would be a mess and yes. she wasn't necessarily wearing makeup. And you, I just thought that, I don't think you really saw that. You know, Mary yes. Tyler Moore, when she was home, always looked well put together. Yes, yes. And I, I really love that she overslept all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love that she just, like, just looks really hassled. And really, like, uh, well, you know, it was implied in in the revival, like, oh, she's messy. Oh, yeah. Um, And unrepentantly messy. And that was one of the ways that it was expressed. And I really liked that. So before we go, I know that we had talked about, uh, talked about a little bit that what you love about the show is how meta it is. And Mm -hmm. you said you found this article on TV or not TV. Yes. It wasn't about the episode. Oh, okay. It's just literally that they use the title. So it's from the Times in 1992, and it was actually about the Dan Quayle incident. Oh, okay, cool. Um, but it's by Bill McKibben, who, you know, is much better known for being uh, an environmentalist and oh. an environmentalist writer. Like, it's weird to find. I didn't know that he did cultural criticism. Interesting. But he does this piece about Murphy Brown, and he says, the sense that TV is becoming more real than life has grown in recent weeks and he doesn't like it. So he says, like, I turned on Joan Rivers' talk show and found this didn't. Oh, what date? What year is this? 1992. Written? Oh, okay. This didn't. This this part does not age well, Bill. I turned on Joan Rivers' talk show and found a panel of female impersonators all looked up, dressed to look like Joan Rivers. That's amazing. Yeah, that What's sounds wrong with actually that? fantastic. Um, a week or two later, Ms. Rivers celebrated Mother's Day by inviting Shirley Jones and Florence Henderson. Uh, who seem to have mild difficulty distinguishing their biological and syndicated children. Since Brady, father Robert Reed's death and HIV di- diagnosis was in the future, we were spared that discussion. Uh, but he talks about the Murphy Brown scene and says, they took it a step f- further and they all managed to look foolish. The correct answer th- to the debate is that Murphy Brown is a character on a TV program. Um, and, you know, there, there are lots, I, I would say there's a lot of media criticism in every age that objects to the meta, right? That, uh-huh. that thinks that the meta is unserious. Um, uh, I and, love meta. And well, and that it um, degrades people. Oh, interesting. Right. Well, I mean, being on the internet all the time, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of discourse. This immersion is not the same thing as drowning. TV encourages us to think of itself as the same thing of li- as living. It's not, not true. It's more complicated than that. Obviously Bill McKibben. Um, but he compares this to the real world, which had debuted the, the, yeah. right around the same time. And he, he's, he's, you know, he, he's doing kind of a cranky, like, we don't talk to each other anymore. Um, we don't expect people to be dynamic. And it's just really like, 
if Murphy Brown has anything to teach us, it isn't about abortion or mothering. It's that you rarely, if ever, see her spending her days and nights watching TV. What? Right, like, like we're not, you know, this is really I don't just, watch television to watch characters watch television. Well, this is, I mean, this is, this is, this is an assen- essentially a version of the, like, get off my lawn of uh, media, right? Yeah. But it's all, but it's also like, she's almost like, we don't, it's not a documentary. We don't see, it's not like a Frederick Wiseman film. We don't yeah. see it's every. It's also not even a drama. It's still a sitcom in the end. It's still going to be a laugh line. Well, one of the great things about the revival is that she does watch TV. That's true, yeah. She loves TV. <laughs> um, the hoarders scene is one of my favorites from the revivals when they they're they fall asleep watching hoarders together. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I but I really but like this idea that um the meta is somehow um like morally compromised and intellectually compromised mm-hmm. is hilarious. And also, and also a signal culture wars fight, right? So that's yeah. part of the reason Murphy Brown is positioned as a culture wars avatar. It's not just because of the Dan Quayle thing, yeah. but because it does it at all, yeah. right? Yeah. And and you know this is to do one more like really grad student thing, please. Um, this that's Baudrillard, right? This is um, the theorist of like uh, the hyper real, mm-hmm. um, or the I don't know how to say this word. Wait, hyper realism? Sim- no, no, like simulacra. Sim- simulacrum. I'm dyslexic, so this is probably not a good right. thing for me well, to help you with. <laughs> well, I think the, the very the very short glosses that of this is Baudrillard says that Disneyland is the real America, huh? Right? That like it has become a part of um, a part of the culture that we do this thing where we recreate the real in order to experience it at what oh. we think of as a more intense and even pure level. Interesting. Um, so this is not just Murphy Brown and TV that yeah. it's, it's, it's like a, a postmodernist shift in society that people find destabilizing and, uh, and upsetting. Mm-hmm. Like it's not that Bill McKibben doesn't like it cause it's stupid. He likes, he doesn't like it because it's stressful. Huh? Right. Interesting. Like it, it's because it's, and cause you know, the Iraq war at the time is also, a sort of hyper-reality experience. That's true, because yeah. Because it's on TV, and also it's three weeks long, and the, I wrote, I had an American Girl Diary when I was uh, that age, I was nine. Mm-hmm. And I wrote in it one day, I, I'm a bad diarist, so a lot of it was empty. But I wrote one day, like, there are millions of American troops in Iraq, is not true remotely i miss them i don't know where that came from i didn't know anyone in the military i my it wasn't something my family talked about yeah like but the message that i a nine-year-old got was like that this thing experience was real for me even though it absolutely was not it was highly mediated it seemed real like oh i miss them no you don't weirdo i mean that's a whole discussion about you know um about uh, how influential media is. You know, yes. I realized um, learning more about Anita Hill as a young adult that as a child, um, I was subconsciously influenced by the way the media portrayed her mm-hmm. in a way that even I, as a feminist, didn't, didn't realize that I had, I had done. Yes. Um, yes. That, well, and but in this case, it's specifically like that there's something we crave about creating the hyper reality mm-hmm. or what Baudrillard's name is Jean Baudrillard. And 
he's using a version of the word like simulation. We, t- we the sim. Why is the simulation of life? Why does it become more real to us? Yeah. What do we get out of that? And part of it is the same thing we get out of sitcoms in the first place, which is narrative satisfaction in a place we we don't we don't have it in real life. So it's almost like Bill McKibben is he's essentially rejecting the premise of the sitcom, but that's not what he thinks he's doing. Mm-hmm. He thinks he's uh, rejecting this idea that. Um, there's something meaningful about thinking about what our mediated experiences are. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and so it's really interesting to think about, especially I, the real world thing it debuted in 1992. Yeah. There, this was a moment that w- this was actually a very intense cultural production of that kind of thing. And Murphy Brown was also part of it. Um, and also was, I mean, funnier and better about it. Like the, the real world was not, super ironic <laughs> but um but that it's it's interesting to think of that as like a signal cultural problem at the time yeah so this has been so fascinating i wish we could talk forever i know next time you're in new york please please come back i will try to i will find as much of i of the show as i can on another place so that i can watch some rar- some rarities and b-sides yeah b-sides yes yeah. the b-side episodes of murphy bride i yes. love that so tell everyone, plug yourself. Where can they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Dear Splenda, like the sugar substitute. And there you can find links to stuff I've done. My pin story right now is a story I did for the New York Times about gun culture in Iowa last year. It's a really good article. Um, thanks. <laughs> but I also I will also send you the link to my style section story if you want. Great, yes, we will put that in uh, the show. Yeah, notes. and I uh, there's also a great article on Dragnet that you wrote oh, that I read yes, about yes. that was really fascinating. I'll recommend that. I'll put that on. Yeah, yeah, because that was that was sort of that what was the dissertation endpoint would have been was the yeah. Dragnet piece. So I I've written about that. I've, a couple other things that might interest people are this vulture piece about wigs. Um, I'm working on a couple of things right now. And one is a story about like one of the last men's colleges in the country. Oh, cool. Well, that fits into the beginning of our conversation. We've come full circle. We did. We did. See, we're good at this. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was really fun. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.